It's been said that every quilt tells a story, and it's so true. But I also believe every quilter has a story to tell. I wanted to hear about the people behind these wonderful quilts and thought you'd enjoy hearing about their lives also. Welcome to A Quilter's Life. How many quilting brains do you have? Michelle Friedman describes her three quilting brains during our chat. I found it interesting that even after working all day for Maywood Studios as a quilt designer and a few other responsibilities, she is not ready to stop working on quilts when she goes home. Quilting is also her hobby and her passion. So additionally, she's designing quilt patterns for her own business, Stitch Well and Prosper. I want to thank Raya Salama for connecting me with Michelle. Thank you, Michelle, for joining me on A Quilter's Life. Hi, Paula. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited to be here. Great. Let's start with where were you born and raised? Well, I don't always admit this out loud, but I am a California girl and I was raised in Chatsworth in the San Fernando Valley. So that has a lot of a little loaded when you're in the Pacific Northwest, but I've come to terms with it over the years that I'm a born and bred Valley girl. I'm trying to picture where San Fernando is. Yeah, it's north of Los Angeles. So there's a few different towns in the San Fernando Valley, like Sherman Oaks and Studio City and Northridge and Chatsworth and Topanga Canyon and Encino. It's just over the hills from the bigger city, from Los Angeles. It's an interesting place. And this is what I like to think about when I think about where I'm from is many of the Folks who worked in the film industry moved to the valley because you could have horses and you could have a ranch. And it was really very beautiful. One of my favorite images of the San Fernando Valley in the early years of the Hollywood days was in a film about Charlie Chaplin. And at the beginning of the film, they pan over orange groves. And my earliest memories of where I grew up in Chatsworth was that there was orange groves everywhere and particularly one at the end of the block where I lived and that was a place where my sister and I and my best friend who lived next door would play and my cousins actually we played in those orange groves a lot so they're not there anymore but it was a really special part of the valley in the earlier days of when I grew up. I didn't see it because we moved to northern California when I was two but My mom talked about the orange groves down there, and I believe I have one or two of the orange crates in my attic now because they had them. That's That's a treasure. We knew one of the artists who painted those crates. He worked for my dad. We never had one, but he was actually one of the first artists that I knew who was a professional artist. And... I always admired his artwork. It was beautiful, and I wanted to paint like he painted. Oh, neat. Was that your childhood memory, or do you have a special childhood memory? That was an unexpected childhood memory that I shared. (laughs) I was thinking about what memory to share, and 
I think adventure was a big part of my childhood. And one of the biggest adventures that my family took together was when I was nine years old, we packed up a truck and drove from Chatsworth, California, Southern California to Alaska. So it was nine weeks on the road, camping the whole way and just highlights like seeing the Northern Lights. And we had an intercom between my parents who were in the front of a truck and my sister and I and the dog in the back of the truck. I don't think that's legal anymore or maybe it never was legal, but we would secretly turn on that intercom and listen to them read books to each other. But that trip, we drew a lot. We read a lot of books. It was quite an adventure. And that was really, I think, a very, very much a foundation of my growing up was going camping somewhere, taking a road trip somewhere with my family. My parents were very adventurous. And my mother was a teacher. So we had the summers to explore. And my mother and my dad divorced when I was really young, when I was five. So my other dad (laughs) that I grew up with as well, he was a jeweler. So he made jewelry and he often would take us out looking for precious metals or rocks and stones that he would incorporate in his jewelry. So all along that trip to Alaska, we were out on an adventure, but also mining for gold and learning about the history of the gold rush and It's just one of my most precious memories of my childhood was having that adventure. I thought everybody grew up that way. And it took me a while to learn that not everybody panned for gold as a weekend hobby. (laughs) So (laughs) you realize those things later when you are a little bit more out in the world and we're like, you did what on the weekends? (laughs) Well, we had gold pans and we'd go to the river or we'd take his dredge and people were like, what's a dredge? And we had black lights and we'd look for olivine and rocks and there were scorpions. And they're like, what year did you grow up? (laughs) I'm not 150, I promise. (laughs) Although that'd be really cool if I was. How neat. What a special experience. And yet we don't know that other people aren't experiencing the same things we are until we do grow up. That's really neat. Did you have employment after high school? I worked from a very young age because of my dad's jewelry business. So he allowed us, my sister, my mom, and I to all be a part of his creative process. And so Working for me was part of what we did as a family. And I don't think I really thought of it as work. I thought of it more as being an artist. So he was a jeweler. And in addition to looking for jaspers and olivines and collecting rocks and seeing how we could make jewelry out of it, he would let us design pieces. And eventually, he and my mom built a manufacturing business for jewelry where he would do a process where he would etch sheets of metal and make findings for other people to use in their jewelry. And so as they grew their business, I found my niche in what they did. And I would draw the designs that they would etch. And as a very young child, middle school, high school became very popular. And it was very exciting to see. And I think really created a foundation for me as a creative person to know that I could be creative as a career. 
But, you know, as kids do, I rebelled a little bit and I was like, well, I want a real job. And so I did things like I worked at an ice cream store and I worked in the mall at a clothing store and I was very interested in fashion. And so that was important to me to have experience working in a fashionable shop. So I worked in a shop that doesn't exist anymore called Judy's. There were two in the mall. One was called Judy's. And one was called Contempo. And Contempo was a little more edgy and I didn't have the confidence to work there. But at Judy's, they had a small men's department. And I was really the only one that was kind of willing to work there. So I merchandised it. I sold to any of the guys that were shopping there that came in. It was really fun too, because at the time, popular music was like Adam and the Ants and you know all this new wave stuff. So guys were really experimenting with how they dressed and I really had fun helping them put outfits together. So those were my first jobs. And really, again, I felt very connected to being creative through fashion. Wow. It was such a neat step from jewelry making to fashion, yet it lines up that it's really neat. I'm sure it overlaps somewhat. It does. And I think what in my mind at the time, I thought I was going to be a writer. I thought I would study English in college. And growing up in the Valley in Los Angeles, parking was a big part of what we did, driving and parking the car. And I was not confident at all parking the car. And I know that sounds really weird, but it really was an obstacle for me to go to a local college or think about having to drive that much to go to college. And I remember I had met somebody kind of outside of my social circle who told me that she was studying fashion design. And I thought, what, wait, what do you mean you're studying fashion design? Like, how is that even a, a topic in school? Like, you can't go to school for sewing. That doesn't make any sense. That's just what we do. I'd grown up sewing. I was more the Molly Ringwald type where I would go thrift shopping and I would remake clothes into other things. Molly Ringwald from the film Pretty in Pink. Like basically I did that and had a little micro economy making people prom dresses out of older gowns that I would redo. And I think some of that was from my interest in fashion, but I didn't make the connection that you could study it in school. So I remember talking to my mom about it and telling her like, listen, I know I got into this one college, but I don't want to go there because I I don't want to park my car every day. (laughs) She was like, what are you talking about? I had to admit to her that I was really not confident in parking and I felt like I was going to fail school because I would never go. And she's like, well, why don't you think about art school? That's a valid path. Like, why don't you try? So I took some summer classes at Otis Parsons College in Los Angeles. And this was the summer I graduated high school. And they accepted me into their fashion design program. And the first year of that program was all fine art. It was called foundation year. I was very much out of my element. And I had done a lot of costume design in high school for our theater productions. And it was also something I loved and did as a hobby was participate in the theater. So I was starting to make those connections like, oh, sewing can be a career. I can do this as a costume designer for film or theater, or I can get a job designing clothing and apparel, like things that were sold at shops like Judy's. 
so the pieces kind of fell into place for me because my parents were very supportive of me going to art school and then also allowing me to have that experience very early on. So I think instead of pressuring me and saying, take the bus to school if you're afraid of parking and forcing me to do something that I maybe wasn't really interested in or ready for, was very generous of them to do that. It was very expensive. And halfway through, I told them I wanted to move to New York City and finish my education there. And in hindsight, they were either very busy with their business and they're like, you know, okay, dear, whatever, dear, (laughs) you know, or they were excited, which I think the latter is probably more true that I was willing to take such a big risk and move across country and really, really learn the craft of sewing and designing. Wow. So you went to New York City. I did. I sold my Volkswagen bug, put that money in the bank and rented an apartment for six months. Wow. Was it It overwhelming or you fit right in? It was absolutely overwhelming. My mom stayed with me for the first few weeks. We stayed in the Gramercy Park Hotel until I could get situated into my apartment that I had rented and It was really such a treat to stay there. It was pretty run down at the time. It was, I think a lot of musicians and artists stayed there, similar in a way to the Chelsea Hotel, but it didn't have that reputation that the Chelsea Hotel had of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was a little off the beaten path, but there was a key to a private park and it's a pretty magical place. And after she got me situated into my apartment, I, uh, remember that first day of going to my classes and getting out of the subway and up onto the street and feeling like I was facing a wave in the ocean. Everyone felt like they were going in the opposite direction of me. And I was just standing there and I felt so overwhelmed. I have such a vivid memory of this and thinking like, what have I done? (laughs) Wow. What an experience. So where are you now and how did you get there? Physically, I am in Portland, Oregon. I stayed in New York after I graduated college for 10 years, and I worked in the apparel industry. I actually ended up working in men's apparel and outerwear, so that followed me through to my first jobs in the industry. Right out of college, actually, I had a teacher, his name was Gary Liz, and I remember telling him, I'm like, I'm not ready for a real job. I was very young. And I had gone straight from high school to art school, which for anyone listening, take a few years of undergraduate, get those academics out. I think the hardest thing for me in art school was not having the same world experience as some of the other students who had done some undergraduate work somewhere else. They just had more to offer. They had a stronger voice. They explored more who they were as an artist. But anyway, (laughs) that's my unsolicited advice. So Gary, Liz... Unfortunately, he died of AIDS in the early 90s, was a big influence on me. And he set me up to work in a costume shop that was run by a woman named Barbara Matera. And she made costumes for American Ballet Theater, New York City Ballet, and all the Broadway shows. So I did that right out of college because I just wasn't ready for what in my mind was a real job. And it was magic. It was pure magic. Every day we were sewing tutus or 
making costumes for Broadway shows and you never knew who's going to walk through the door. I mean, Vershnikov standing at my table. Are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> Nuryev in the fitting room. I mean, just, it was magic. It was, you know, I only did it for two years. It wasn't a healthy lifestyle for me. We worked from eight in the morning till 10 at night sometimes. And we made like seven or $8 an hour. So it wasn't sustainable, but I still keep in touch with many of the people who I worked with then, who stayed in the industry, who became head drapers. I was what was called a firsthand, meaning I was a draper's assistant and I would mark the patterns on the fabric. I would pin the fabric together. I would lay the fabric out. After a year, they would trust me to cut the fabric or make a bow, like certain iconic things that the Barbara Matera costume was known for. I sewed net together as foundations for corsets or ballet bodices. They're basically corsets, but it was all sewing and draping and fitting and tailoring. And it was probably 10 years of experience packed into two. And after I had done that, I heard of a job. Someone I went to college with said, hey, we need a designer. Why don't you come interview him? So that's how I ended up getting my first professional design job in the industry. It was a company that did what they call private label in the industry. So we did all kinds of different designs for companies like Ann Taylor, where there's you know not really an Ann Taylor, but you make it for that label. And once I got a few years of doing that under my belt, I had the confidence to go for a job that was more in line with where I wanted to go as a designer. So I ended up working for a division of Ralph Lauren doing men's outerwear and men's pants and truly the best business card ever, ever in my life. I was the product manager for outerwear and bottoms. I hold that very, very dear in my life that I've managed men's bottoms. <laughs> so I worked there for a while and really fell in love with designing outerwear which makes a lot of sense to me now. It didn't really at the time as a California girl, why I was somehow really good at designing quilted jackets. <laughs> so now it makes sense. Now it's, it's led me to a career as, you know, designing quilts. But at the time, I would explain it to people as, you know, how a man can design the most beautiful women's gowns. Well, this California hippie girl who grew up collecting rocks in the desert is really good at designing winter coats. You just can't explain it sometimes. <laughs> so so that skill set and that passion led to an opportunity here in Oregon with Nike. My younger sister was already living here and I thought with the ego of a 20-something, I'm gonna get Nike to fly me out here on an interview and then I can have a free visit to my sister, which I can't even imagine who that person was that thought that way but that was me and that happened and I did get the job and I thought well I'll just stay one year and that was in 1996 so I stayed a lot longer than one year here and really found my place and my home here in the Pacific Northwest. Oh neat. Michelle is there anything else you would like to share about your family? I have quilters in my family. <laughs> I have two cousins that quilt. My cousin Tamara was also my babysitter growing up. And she taught me magical things like chicken scratch embroidery and Bargello needlepoint. And she is an award winning 
quilter and a quilt judge. When I was writing my first quilt pattern, of course, I turned to her and she's been a wonderful support for me. And then recently made one of my quilt designs, which was just so joyful for me. It was like, wow, she's someone I look up to so much. And now she's made one of my designs. So that was really neat. And then another cousin of mine who quilts has also had a great influence on me. Her name is Jan. And she is a quilt historian and has an incredible collection of doll quilts and just a wealth of knowledge of quilting and also was somebody very creative early on in my life. We have some family pictures and I I believe it's a memory. It could also be a memory from a photo where she was living with my family for a while and made me this cake that was a bear and it was a decorated sheet cake and I just had never seen anything like it. And I was so surprised by it and delighted and thought like, that's an artist. (laughs) But to be honest, both of my sisters are incredibly creative. My sister Pam made a quilt before I did. She made it for my daughter and it's absolutely beautiful. She got a handkerchief from all the women in our family and worked with a friend and made a baby quilt for Lily when I was pregnant. And then my other sister, Lauren, is an incredible knitter. We run parallel lives, I think, and her passion is knitting and mine is with quilting textiles, but she's tried many times to teach me to knit. I've knitted some things successfully with her guidance, but she's really very talented. And then my mom and my grandma both sewed. I was around sewing my whole life. They really sewed a lot of our clothing and encouraged me to sew a lot of my clothing. So they were definitely inspiring for me and really helped me learn how to sew. And then also cultivated that with me, I think, both of them. When I was in junior high, we called at the time or middle school, we had shop classes and I had had some surgery and couldn't take PE. So I got to be in sewing class all year and I would tell my mom, like, I want to make this dress or I want to make that dress. So she would take me to the mall and let me pick out patterns and then I would sew them in my class at school. So I feel like I've been surrounded by these incredibly creative and talented women in my family. It's something that I've recently started to see as a narrative because my mom and dad ran a business and my sister, both of them are successful academically and in the business world. And I think I was always sort of under the moniker as the creative one. But I do see this common thread with us as a family where there are creativity was allowed, exploration was allowed, mistakes were allowed. (laughs) For sure, my stepdad, he had a sign up in his jewelry studio that said, if you fail, try, try again. And I'm sure my sister and I are still fighting over who gets to hang that in their house. (laughs) If it's in their house right now, we always try to sneak it out as a a special place in, in both of our childhood memories. How neat. And it sounds like it's such a fun thing to do with your sister. Besides quilting, are there other crafts that you do or that you have done in the past? It's probably easier to name the ones I haven't tried. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I really love to crochet. And that's something my grandmother taught me how to do. I go back and forth with crocheting and knitting as an alternative to sewing. 
I'm trying to learn knitting, but crocheting is a go-to for me. I love drawing. It's been something I've done since I was little. So I will, again, I'll go through periods of time where I draw or I experiment with more paper crafts. One year, I didn't feel like taking my Christmas ornaments out of the basement during the pandemic and made every single ornament for my tree using just paper and things I had around the house. So I like to do things like that. I think it all is part of my process for exploring design. I love to write. That's that earliest creative adventure I think I ever took. I hope that one day I'll have the confidence to maybe put some of my work out there. I've written two books, so that's kind of a strange thing for me to say, but I want to write mystery novels. So that's out there. I love dyeing fabric and manipulating textiles. Oh, photography. We call it the Friedman photo gene. My biological father was a photographer, both professionally and as a hobbyist. I've had a camera in my hand since I was probably four years old. I dropped my mother's camera down the Grand Canyon. I mean, there are lots of cameras in my life. So I do it for work now. I do a lot of lifestyle photography. And it's something that is another way for me to see also as designing. It creates that invisible wall where you can kind of step back and see something as a composition rather than a real life moving image. So I am hoping to venture into doing reels with my photography, but still life and lifestyle photography for me is kind of like painting. I would say painting is something I don't gravitate towards. I get overwhelmed by it. There are so many colors. It's just one of those things where I will use it if I'm drawing. I'll I'll use gouache, but I really admire people who painting is their medium and their hobby. Just I'm in awe of it because it's not something I feel like is part of my wheelhouse. Something I don't think I'll try. (laughs) (laughs) I like not being good at things too, though. I do have to say that I'm not good at knitting and that's very humbling for me because I get to have that beginner mind. And I get to learn things and make mistakes and take risks and then have those discoveries. So maybe I'll try painting. Now I've put it out there. (laughs) (laughs) How about any other hobbies in your life? This could sound funny. I like to take walks. I find like I can really think when I'm hiking or walking We have quite a rainy season here in the Pacific Northwest, so I still walk in the rain. I had a dog for a long time and would go on long walks with the dog, and my husband would join me, and we would seek out places to walk together. You know, maybe that's a little part of my adventurous upbringing where we would find places to walk. And I think my daughter also inspired me a lot to go on hikes. But I do like being in nature. We're surrounded by such beauty here in the Pacific Northwest that staying inside the house almost feels like rebellious. (laughs) You know, like go outside, it's beautiful. But I've not ever felt much like somebody who could cultivate that kind of nature on my own. So I've recently been interested in growing a dye garden. I've had a couple attempts. I will attempt again this year. And as my mentor in gardening would say, you got to water the plants, Michelle, or they're going to (laughs) die. I thought you had plenty of water in the Pacific Northwest. 
you know, our summers, our growing seasons here, we've been flanked by these awful fires and heat domes and just things that have made it very challenging. But you do have to water plants even when it rains as much as it does here or your plants don't grow. So my dream is to be able to dye textiles with plants that I grow myself. And last year I grew a beautiful sunflower garden and I harvested all the sunflowers and then I got distracted and created a lovely feast for many squirrels. So that's what happened to my sunflower garden. The year before that, I grew indigo and marigolds and we had a heat issue. So I did some other things with the indigo, but didn't catch it in time. I wanted to do some fresh thyme with it using ice. I didn't catch it in time to do that. So I made a wreath out of it and it hangs in my kitchen. Really pretty. Well, good luck this year. Thank you. (laughs) I ordered some seeds from Baker Creek Seeds. I ordered my sunflowers from them last year and they were beautiful. Like those sunflowers, I took pictures of them every single day. It was really ridiculous. I probably should have made an Instagram page just for myself, for my pictures, because I was the only one really interested in it. But it was really sweet because I went to visit my daughter in Los Angeles and my neighbor took some pictures of my sunflowers. And sent them to me and said, I know you take pictures of your flowers every day. And I thought you might be missing them. (laughs) They're really sweet. What nice neighbors. Yeah. Do you think any of those hobbies show up in your quilting? Absolutely. I took a class in the early pandemic through my quilt guild with a woman named Anna Joyce. And she taught our guild how to do ice dyeing. And I've done all kinds of dyeing in my life, but I've never done that technique. And I really loved it and loved the unpredictable results from it. And our art director at work was really inspired by the fabrics too. So she made a textile collection out of them. And then I was able to use those fabrics in quilts that I made. And it was really neat because it's super hard to cut into your beautiful ice dyed fabrics. And I will, I promise I will use them. I made one quilt with them for my daughter. They're really beautiful. And it's fun to be able to work with color and imagine or kind of take that unpredictability of that process and think about how that would work in a quilt and how you can use those pieces. So everything kind of informs the next step for me. I've recently, just for fun, tried to design a crocheted piece and a quilted piece using the same design idea and see if I could translate it in those two mediums just as a personal exercise because I've never written a crochet pattern yet. So I'm still exploring that, but I think that would be really fun because Not every crocheter likes to quilt. Not every knitter likes to crochet. And it'd be nice to offer those same patterns and designs and ideas in in different mediums. So that's something I'm exploring. Oh, cool. And those that do like to do both will have their choice or can coordinate things. Yeah, definitely. And I've seen so much crossover lately. Like I see crocheters being inspired by quilt blocks and you know, the granny square quilt that's been around for a while, but there's some new versions of it that are just so cool and so fun. 
And I just love that it's all about handwork. Even when I'm cooking, I think in the same way. I think, how do these colors work together? And what do I need to add to this for it to feel colorful or nutritious? And same thing when I'm designing quilts, like how do I make this feel balanced? How do I create some kind of a, a narrative in this that maybe someone else will look at and it will inspire them to think of something or think of a story. I like stories too. Mm-hmm. Tell me about who introduced you to quilting or how you came about to quilt. So there's a couple different times in my life that quilts were introduced to me, but I don't think I made a connection that I could make this. Even as an adult, I didn't ever have a quilt on my bed. Those seemed like something from the olden days, something that they had in other kinds of homes. We had blankets, my grandma crocheted blankets for us. You know, we had comforters or duvet covers. And I started to teach some sewing camps to kids when my daughter was little. One of the camps I taught was for 18 inch dolls. And we would make quilts for them, but I still wasn't really putting together that I was making a quilt. And my sister had made a baby quilt, like I mentioned, for my daughter. But at that point, I had not made one. So my daughter is diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when she turned seven. And we became involved with the local chapter of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. And they were having a gala and were looking for items for that gala. And so I made a quilt. and. Looking back, I picked a block that I thought was really neat. I picked a traditional bow tie block. I liked that it was three-dimensional. And then I brought it to a long-arm quilter. There's another story, kind of a part A and part B of the story. But she was like, you know, when I quilt this, I'm going to quilt over that part that you took so much time to make. So I didn't really even understand hand quilting or what a quilt sandwich was. And as a matter of fact, the binding for that quilt coming from an apparel background, I cut it all out on a bias and hand sewed it on like I would finishing a shirt collar or something. So I just didn't have any background in it. And even though I had two cousins that were quilters at that point, I wasn't in touch with them. And I kind of came to know them after I had started quilting. So We had a very active local quilt guild here. I met that long armor through. She was actually the reason I went to my first guild meeting. I was walking around Portland with a friend of mine who's visiting from New York City, and we saw her sign that said, Just Quilting. And my friend said, What is that? And I said, I don't know. It's just quilting stuff. I don't know what it is. And she's like, Well, let's go up. Let's see what it is. And I was pretty annoyed with her at the time. So I went upstairs and of course it was Nancy Stovall and I was immediately just charmed by her and so curious and let my guard down and knock that chip off my shoulder for whatever reason why it was there. And I was like, what, what is this? A long arm? What, what are all those threads? What's happening here? So she invited me to a meeting for the Portland Modern Quilt Guild. And again, I was pretty hesitant to go because I didn't understand what it was. I had never sewn in a group outside of working at the costume shop. I expected I would meet Nancy and that would be nice and my friend would join me. But when I got there, I saw a room full of people who 
I felt like, wait a minute, I want to know who everyone in this room is. Like they have all these beautiful quilts and creative projects and where have they been my whole life? So it was really the moment for me when it made sense, when I understood that this was something that wasn't in a JCPenney catalog necessarily, that wasn't made somewhere else that you could make yourself, that could be beautiful and exciting. It had a history to it that was fascinating. One of the early meetings I went to, Susan Beal, who's West Coast Crafty, did a presentation on log cabin quilting and all of the different layouts for log cabins. And I felt like I couldn't stop thinking about it. Like what you put them this way and it could do this and you can make a lightning bolt or shadows. And I was just stunned. It's such a rich and exciting thing to discover. And the folks in the guild were just incredibly talented and creative and it was something new. So that was really how I came into quilting. Then I just tried it. Then I just kept trying it and like finding that bow tie block and a book. It was a Harriet Hartgrave book that I borrowed from the library and I used scissors. I didn't even know how to use a rotary cutter. My first quilts I made with scissors and bias binding. (laughs) And most of them I gave away. I actually didn't keep a quilt for many years because I would use them for fundraisers and to give for baby gifts and things like that. It is amazing. And it's great that so many of us really don't have the quilts in our home because they've been gifts. Yeah. Whether it's a quilt that you made or another quilt, do you have a favorite quilt? I do. I get very attached to my quilt because my quilts that I design personally come from a personal narrative. So I like to think of what they mean to me and what they'll mean in the future. So I connect stories to them. But I will say the first quilts that I really fell in love with outside of my guild that I was in were Denise Schmidt's quilts. She came from a similar design background. She went to RISD. And when I saw her quilts and how she worked with color and her fabrics, I was a flea market junkie myself and had collected many, many textiles over the years for my work in the fashion industry. I thought, wow, I want to learn more about what she's doing. Like her quilts are so beautiful and different. They're smart. The way she uses color, the way she takes a traditional block and makes it feel really modern and makes it her own. I would say her quilts are still some of my most favorite quilts. I've had the opportunity to take classes with her over the years. I'm very, very grateful for that. I think another quilter, I love everything she does. And I've taken classes from her and she's so smart and incredible designer is Latifa Safir. And I am obsessed with her new Hurdy ruler. I can't stop making half rectangle triangles. She's a brilliant designer and I admire what she does. Almost every time I see something she does, I'm just, wow, so smart, such great designs, such a great sense of color and balance and shapes. And she made a quilt for the SJSA, the Social Justice Sewing Academy memory quilts that was made out of denim. And it's just 
honestly one of the most gorgeous quilts I've ever seen in my life for many, many reasons. But I really admire both of them. They're very different from each other too in their style. And then I also really love Victoria Finlay Wolf. I love her theory of play and putting scraps together and building a textile with scraps. She's been very much an inspiration for when I need to think outside of my brain or my wheelhouse. I always go back to her book about playing with fabric. Such neat people to look up to and to get inspiration from. And what tool are you so happy that you have? This is a funny one. I cannot live without my purple thing. I'm a stiletto girl. I have always sewn with stilettos. That tool is somehow magic. And if you don't know what it is, I am not paid to say this in any way. Get up my purple thing. It's the best stiletto out there if you sew with stilettos. <laughs> yeah, it's honestly my favorite tool. I love my sewing machine too. I think of that as a tool. It's something that has been a way that I've made many quilts. I don't hand sew my quilts. I've hand quilted one very small project. My hands are very sweaty. (laughs) I know that sounds funny, but I'm married to a guitar player and I've been told that the oils in my hands deaden the strings on the guitars. I've been told this by more than one person. I played guitar as a child as well. So hand sewing is not a go-to for me just because of that. The thread will turn brown. I'll get fingerprints all over my quilt. So it doesn't bring me joy. So my sewing machine does. I feel like I'm a really good driver because of that too. If Car Talk was still on the air, I always wanted to talk to them about how I think sewers are the best drivers out there because we have some nuance with pedals. So do you like each step of the process or do you like one step more than others? I think one time my guild had a question, just kind of a fun thing, like who likes pressing fabric and who doesn't? And I might've been the only person that raised my hand to say that I liked pressing. I really love pressing, but I will say that there's a few things that have changed that for me recently. I wear glasses now and Having your glasses fog up when you're pressing fabric is a thing that I had not experienced before. (laughs) So that's hard and a little frustrating. Also, for all of the women out there, having hot flashes and pressing is very uncomfortable. So pressing at certain times of day for me became an adjustment that I made in order to be able to feel comfortable because it's a real thing. It's really not comfortable to have a hot flash while you're around a hot iron. So real top girls, it's just part of it. And I had surgical menopause. So I was having hot flashes like 40 times a day. And it was really, really very uncomfortable (laughs) for me to press. So that part of quilting that I really found a lot of joy in, I think it goes back to my costume design days where we had these beautiful steam irons and they used to make these sounds and it felt very musical for me. And it was very relaxing for me to be on the table in the costume shop using these beautiful steam irons. All of that for me, I don't know, maybe it's some weird past life experience. I have no idea, but I really like that part. But my most favorite part is probably the beginning part of the process. I love designing quilts. I do it every week. 
I made a challenge for myself last year to try to design one quilt a week. I do design quilts at work, so those don't count. So sometimes it's three or four quilts a week, but I love to draw. I love to think of how blocks work together. That part of the process for me just lights a fire. And then when I do make the quilts that I design, sometimes I get really mad at myself. Like, why didn't you think of this? Like, how can you put this angle next to this corner? Because that will never work. So I'm my best and worst audience most of the time. (laughs) Describe your worst quilting experience. So that's a hard question. And I thought a lot about that because I knew you would ask me that question. And I think I want to frame my worst quilting experience in a way that it was the most emotionally difficult experience for me quilting. I signed up to make a memory quilt with the Social Justice Sewing Academy. I've made memory quilts before, and I don't think I realized the depth of the emotional impact it would have on me to receive a bag of clothes for someone I didn't know and hold the responsibility of honoring this person for the family that lost them. It was much more difficult than I anticipated. It took me months to take the clothing apart. I had to find ways to honor that and to feel as though it was okay to do it. In this particular case, the family didn't want to be contacted. So this was a very internalized process for me. Nobody was telling me not to cut the clothes or to cut the clothes. It just was having to experience this in my own time and feel like I was ready to do it. So it became something that I dreaded. I felt like it was so emotional every time that I went to work on it. It took me a while to really find how that could be peaceful for me. And what I ended up doing was calling out to the community and being like, I need you to be here with me. And so I put out a call for folks to join me in piecing this. And I didn't give them any of the clothing pieces, but there were some pieces that were in the design that I had created for this memory quilt that I could give to someone to do. And so knowing that I had a community helping me build this quilt for this family and putting those pieces together gave me the support I needed to work through that and finish that quilt. It was beautiful. And I felt really like I had honored him and that the folks who helped me with that quilt were part of that. So it was really the hardest quilt I ever had to make. The quilting community is So wonderful at uplifting each other. I love that part of your story. Yeah. Oh, I got really like (laughs) cryy. As I started to take apart a jacket they had sent, they sent me two pieces of clothing. They sent me a denim jacket that was covered with patches and paint and a basketball jersey. And I'm like, how am I going to make a quilt out of this? And I realized that was the wrong question to ask. So I was already starting off just what process am I going to use in order to honor this person? And as I took that jacket apart, I took apart every patch and I found a receipt in the pocket for something he'd done a few days before 
he was killed and I found a coin in another pocket and these things. And it was so personal and so powerful. It was really hard. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So do you know why you are pulled to do quilts rather than spend your time on another hobby? I ask myself that question <laughs> pretty frequently. I love doing it. I love it. It's creating useful objects for the home or to keep somebody warm for me makes a lot of sense. It's something that felt right when I was designing outerwear. It's something that I love doing and playing with fabric and color to create these very useful objects. That's who I am as a quilter. I am not currently doing art quilts or quilts that aren't used or hopefully quilts that are used. I'm continuing to explore that. How will this quilt look on a bed? What room does it go in? Who uses this quilt? These are stories for me that I'm interested in exploring. It's part of who I am at the foundation of expressing myself creatively. And even back to making jewelry with my parents, how is this rock going to be turned into a beautiful piece of jewelry that somebody's going to cherish or hand down. I think the legacy of making a quilt and having it become part of something that a family has for me is an honor and a privilege to be able to be part of. And I love doing it. It's like the the lightning bolt came and took everything that I love to do and You know, this electric current went through it and out came a quilt. Like you love to draw, you love fabric, you love designing, you love to sew. Like all of those things together, it just makes sense. I think that's my answer. (laughs) I don't always know how to answer that. I'm not sure. I'm still learning. I'm still trying to understand that myself. It's a hard question to answer, I think. But I'm just trying to get behind What are people thinking? Because we seem drawn to do certain things. And so I'd like to see what people have to say on that. Who do you usually make your quilts for? I think I have two quilt frames, maybe three. I design quilts for work. So that's a very specific type of who. The customer who is purchasing those fabrics that we make at Maywood Studio, I want to think of what would be a fun quilt to make. How can I design a quilt that shows these fabrics and inspires somebody to cut them up (laughs) and put them back together and have something that they love? I design with that person in mind. And it's not just a single person. It's many, many different people. I try to think of something fun and inspiring that Somebody would say this is clever or this is fun and fast or I've never tried this technique. So maybe a little educational component in there too. So that's one quilt brain. My second quilt brain is more of I design quilts that are personal to me, but something that I want to share with the world and write a pattern for. So I found that a medium that works well for me is to submit ideas to magazines. And I love magazines. And so it's something that works for me as a designer to think about a theme or a call 
and how I can adapt that into a design that's personal. So the magazines will send out something like, what winter holidays do you celebrate? And we're looking for quilts that represent who you are as a quilter. And that represents that holiday you celebrate in the winter. So I love those kind of challenges. And one of the designs I had in a magazine last year was based on Hanukkah, which is a holiday that I celebrate in the winter. And I've done several versions of this quilt, drawing it and exploring ideas for it. But I hadn't really had that creative prompt where it like made me really work through all of those design ideas and come up with something that I wanted to send to a magazine. So I have this editorial quilter in mind. That's maybe my second quilt brain is this editorial quilt brain. And then the other quilt brain is, I think, more of a charity quilt brain. You know, how can I use these scraps and fundraise with this or give it to someone who needs it? And I think most quilters do that. Like we hear somebody needs a quilt, we make it. There's a call for quilts for somebody who lost quilts in a fire or a natural disaster and we get together and we make them. And so that's sort of my third quilt brain is making sure that everybody has something that will keep them warm and that is beautiful. Well, since you mentioned that Hanukkah quilt, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that. It's beautiful. I saw it on your website and I fell in love with it. Can you describe it a little bit more? Yes. So I designed a quilt called Oh Hanukkah, and it was published in Quiltmaker magazine. And the design uses traditional log cabin piecing, and each block represents a night of Hanukkah. So there are eight nights in Hanukkah. So the first block, there are no candles. I think that's probably one of my favorite blocks because that's the night before Hanukkah when you go and you get out your menorah and you clean all the wax off that you haven't cleaned and you make sure you have enough candles and you get ready. And the second block has the center block on the menorah called the shamas and then the first candle that you light. And so each block after that, you add a candle. And it's been fun for me to answer questions. I, again, kind of like growing up mining for gold on the weekends, didn't realize that Hanukkah wasn't something everybody understood. I mean, I know that fundamentally, but simple things like, oh, you let the candles burn down every night and then you put new ones in the next day. So that was something I was able to share because I made this quilt and it inspired some questions about lighting candles and the ceremony around that. Hanukkah is also an interesting holiday. I decided to do a Hanukkah quilt because the call was for holidays that happen in the winter, but it isn't one of the more important holidays in the Jewish faith. It's a minor holiday. It's actually kind of an unusual holiday, but I think one of the messages about the holiday is persecution and religious freedom. And so it was also a hard quilt for me to design because I really wasn't out as a Jewish quilter for whatever that is. There's a reason to be. And now I feel like I've really put that out there. The exciting thing about that for me is that I've now met other Jewish quilters. <laughs> so uh, the editor of that magazine, Tracy Mooney, I told her this story recently and said, you know, you've opened a door for me as a Jewish quilter to meet other Jewish quilters. We can talk about things, but it's a little different than having to explain what something means. They already 
no. And, you know, we're more talking about technique or things we're making and maybe even talking about like, oh, how do we incorporate some symbolism that maybe is in the Jewish worldview into our quilts? How do we have a collective voice? It's just the beginning of something. And so I really credit the editor for choosing my design, getting me out of my comfort zone. I love that quilt. Log cabins are hard to sew, by the way. (laughs) Straight lines, probably the hardest thing for me to do is sew a straight line. That sounds funny, but there's a lot of straight lines and matching seams in that. So I really love that quilt. There's a lot to talk about with the Jewish experience and quilting that I'm still understanding and learning how to talk about. So I think that quilt will be with me for a long time and let me indulge in those conversations and allow myself to have them. Well, I'm glad it's brought all that out. And like I said, it caught my eye. And when I looked at it on your website, I thought, I've seen this. So I bet I saw it on the magazine's website or somewhere. I knew I had seen it before I saw it on your website. That's a good song too, right? Like when you hear a song and you're like, that sounds like, I feel like I already know the lyrics. Like for me, then I know I'm going to love that song and it'll stay with me. So maybe it's some of that too. Yeah. Yeah. That was really neat. Before we started, we talked a little bit about your name. And could you share your name in Hebrew? <laughs> yeah. My name in Hebrew is Michael. And it's fun to share that. So we all have Hebrew names, all of the sisters in my family. And I give my daughter a Hebrew name. And it's kind of our fun little like, oh, I've got another name too thing. In high school, my friends called me Misha because they couldn't make that sound, that sound. Yeah. <laughs> So they decided to call me Misha. They thought that was funny because I'm not a Russian ballet dancer and that would crack them up. Recently, I had a friend call me that, Mish, and I was like, wow, I haven't heard that in so long. Like, yeah, call me that. I like that. (laughs) Do you have a special project going on right now? I do. I just had another quilt accepted into a magazine. That's what I'm going to do when we get off of this call is I'm going to go make some test blocks. One of my favorite quotes, and and I'm going to get this wrong, but I'll paraphrase it, is from a designer. His name is Manuel, and he worked for a designer named Nudie. Uh, Nudie made Western suits for country music stars and cowboys and film stars. And I wrote a book with my co-author, Holly George Warren, on him. And Manuel would always say, my most favorite project is the next one I make. (laughs) So I think that rings true for me too. Like I designed this quilt and I'm like, oh, it's my favorite quilt I've ever designed. But I think I say that about every single thing I design. But I am very excited to make this. I've had a series of quilts recently that have been named either after a song or after song lyrics. And so the Oh Hanukkah quilt was the first one. I have another one coming out in a magazine that's named after a Duran Duran song. That'll be out this spring and then This latest quilt is also named after a song and it'll be in McCall's magazine next fall. So I don't know, maybe that's my thing. I'm I'm married to a musician and my daughter's a musician. So maybe it creeps in somehow to my process. How fun. That will be great to be watching for. Share a quilting tip. Don't be afraid to make a mistake. There's that adage, measure once and cut twice. Okay, you made a mistake. You're in charge of that. You decide if you want to rip that seam out or not. 
when I taught quilting classes, whether they were to children or to adults, I always did my quilters 2020 eye test and I made them look at a quilt on the wall and stand up close to it and then take a few steps back and a few steps back and a few more steps back and tell me if they could see the same thing that they saw when they were up close to that quilt. And I said, you might look at it with binoculars, but most people are going to see it as a whole. And so that one thing that you're unhappy with or that one mistake you made, it's up to you if you want to change it. And if you don't change it, that's okay. You know, leave it in. It's part of that quilt. Change it the next time you make it. And I really think making sure that you are enjoying the process every step of the way is important. So for example, if you're not ready to quilt a quilt by yourself, save up and have someone else do it for you. It's okay. Or if your dream is to make that quilt from start to finish and it takes three years, I mean, that's fantastic. You did that. A year ago, last April, my left shoulder froze and it was shocking. I use my arms every day. I sew every day and I had absolutely zero ability to use my left arm. I had just finished two quilts. I had a few more I was working on. And I think I froze as a creative. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't work. I got really depressed. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't use my arm. And I was shocked by it. And then it occurred to me one day, what if I had somebody cut this quilt for me? I could still sew the pieces together. And so I did. I paid someone to cut the quilt for me. And I made the quilt. And then I saved up my money. And I had her cut another quilt for me. And I'm like, okay, we can adapt to these things. We can be in charge of enjoying the process and what makes us happy. And the parts that don't make us happy, find a way to still be able to do what we love to do. And that's my best advice. Don't let something small like a mistake or a frozen shoulder stop you from continuing to do what you're passionate about. Great advice. Thanks for that. Okay, I wanted to talk a little bit about Maywood Studios. Can you share what they're all about? Yes. Maywood Studio is a textile company that is a division of the distributor E.E. E. Shank. So Maywood Studio is here in Portland, Oregon, and they design probably 20 collections a year of quilting cottons. And I started working with them. Actually, my five-year anniversary is coming up next week. And so I joined the company as a graphic design and a marketing manager. And I also design quilts that I was kind of talking about before that when we do a collection of fabrics, we create a quilt that is offered in a kit. And then it's offered also if somebody wants to view it or download it on the website or any shop can use it that is connected to that collection. So I tried to count in preparation for this and got to 50 and I'm like, oh, designed over 50 quilts for them. But I don't know why I sort of brushed that off. I'm really actually very proud of that work I've done for them. It's one of my favorite parts of my job. But I work with a team of six or seven people and we each have our specialties. So I work with a merchandising manager. Her name's Catherine Schmidt. And she has this amazing rainbow order brain and editorial mind that can take a fabric collection and make a beautiful pre-cut stack. And she can color up quilts using these fabrics. 
that just surprise you and you want to make every one of them. And then I work with the art director, Charlotte Flory. And Charlotte is coming up with the ideas for these collections and working with her team of artists, Andrea and Sophia and other artists um, that she works with, all of our licensed designers to create these collections. She's an incredible artist and one of the most prolific artists I've ever met and creative throughout every part of her being is creative. And then I work with an incredibly talented graphic designer. His name is Allie, who creates all of the branding and catalog layouts. And she's a printmaker as her hobby. And so she brings that vision and artistic eye to everything she does. And then we have Alex, who does all of our importing and logistics. And he is one of the smartest people I've worked with. And he hasn't sewn a quilt yet, but he walked into our team of quilting people and he understood it immediately. So I finally pulled out of him that his mother works for Pendleton Woolen Mill. So I suspect he's been around textiles, but he really just understood it immediately. And it was amazing. It's a small team. And we work with Brittany Gray, who's the president of E.E. Shank. It's her family's company and put these collections out and they're sold all over the world. I answered an email this morning from someone in Germany who had a question about one of our basics collections. So it's really, really fun. It's a very small company, but we're mighty. How exciting to work for such a neat company. And can you tell me, how do you balance your personal quilting and your working quilting? Yeah, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I'm an empty nester. My daughter moved to Los Angeles for college and never looked back. (laughs) So I found that I have some free time on my hands. So I have the privilege of being able to work in the evenings or work at night. And that wasn't always the case. So I recently came back to doing the more narrative quilting that I submit to magazines. I didn't have time for that for many, many years. And I recently built a website. I hadn't done that for years. I was like, oh, I should write commercial patterns or start my own business, but it just wasn't something I was able to do. So I'm feeling like I have more time now in my loneliness (laughs) to (laughs) create more of a very lonely hobby. (laughs) I'm just kidding about that. It's a very social hobby if you want it to be. But I definitely have more time because of being an empty nester. Yeah. I understand the empty nest somewhat, but I hope you get to enjoy it. I do. And I've been taking advantage of some of my newly accumulated time to do some writing and be able to take more walks. It took me a few years to enjoy it. And we did have the pandemic. So I think that was shocking for most people. And I feel like I'm maybe able to see a little further out now than I was felt very moment to moment over the past few years. And I'm a huge podcast fan. So again, appreciate being on this, but I was listening to a podcast that I listen to weekly from an international organization called Sisters in Crime. And they were interviewing an author about whether she was in the writing world, what they call a pantser or a plotter. And so a pantser is someone who writes by the seat of their pants and a a plotter is someone who outlines everything in advance. And she said somewhere along the line, she heard the term flashlighting and she felt that described her process really well. And 
flashlighting is when you imagine you can go as far as you can to the end of that beam of light. And then when you get there, you'll see what those next steps are. And I feel a little bit like that's how I fit quilting into my life now. So I flashlight quite a bit. And when I said beam of light, I also kind of chuckled to myself because no matter what I say, when I'm describing my process, something very Star Trekky always comes out. And that's the name of my website. And the, the name of my Instagram handle is based on a Star Trek saying. My website is Stitch Well and Prosper, but the Live Long and Prosper is Leonard Nimoy's saying that he famously said on Star Trek. And admittedly, I am not a Trekkie. So that's also hilarious. So maybe one day I will be. I really connected with that phrase and turned it into my own because when he was asked about it, he mentioned how it was part of his Jewish heritage. So I connected to that and kind of changed it around to make it more sewing themed. So beams of light and Star Trek somehow, some way will end up in my quilting. I'm not sure how. I will wait and I will flashlight till I get there. <laughs> my husband is a Trekkie and he has the podcast Wisdom Trek and he kind of took that off that too. It's wisdom-t-r-e-k. So when I saw your website title or your Instagram title, I had to go over to him and say, look at this, stitch well and prosper, because I knew he would love that. Oh, good. It makes me laugh. It also is a fun thing to talk about as far as my Jewish heritage. And it's a talking point for me to open up a conversation with. Should someone want to have it about the origins of that phrase? That's great. I love it. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with us? I would love to share that if there's anybody out there that's interested in learning how to quilt or learning what the industry is about, that I love to have those conversations. We started a program at work. There's an application process for 12 people a year to be part of what we call the Maywood Maker Program, and we built an educational component on it. Somebody opened a door for me into the quilting industry, and I would love to be that door for anybody that is interested in learning more about the industry or has questions about it. So please reach out to me, DM me on Instagram and I have a website now, which is new for me this year. So I'd love to talk about this industry, talk about this craft, and I would love to open doors or provide that opportunity if somebody is seeking that and has questions. Very good. What a great opportunity you're offering. And I think you mentioned that Raya is one of your makers this year. Raya was one of our makers last year. It was great to get to know her. She's so incredibly talented and makes just the most beautiful quilts. She's got this engineering mind that fits pieces together in puzzles that I couldn't even imagine in the first place. And she's generous with her time and has a beautiful sense of color. So I really enjoyed getting to know her last year. And she posted about your podcast, and that's how I reached out to you. She's a quilter's treasure chest, I believe is her business name. Well, I appreciate her reaching out to you. And if people want to hear her story, they can look up her name on my website under the episode tab. 
And her links will be listed also if they want to find those. So thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a pleasure to meet you. And I've had so much fun talking to you. It's fun to think about these questions that you've created to archive these stories. And I really am excited to listen to your next episode. (laughs) Thanks, Michelle. Bye-bye. Bye. find more stories on aquilterslife.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so each episode will be downloaded automatically. Also, I want to hear about you and your wonderful quilts. Please contact me, Paula Chamberlain, through the website to set up an interview. And as always, thanks for listening. <music>